Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means that you'll hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 12th. Today in 1917, the Bisbee deportation started in Arizona. So the Bisbee deportation seems really straightforward on its surface. There were workers at a collection of copper mines in and around Bisbee, and they went on strike. And fed up with all of these workers who were on strike, the sheriff and a posse of more than a thousand temporarily deputized civilians rounded them all up and put them on a train and drove that train out of town. So that's weird. It seems like a bizarre overreaction to a labor dispute and a very strange way to handle one. But what actually was going on was a lot more complicated than that. This had happened before. Earlier in the week, a much smaller deportation happened in Jerome, Arizona, also in response to a strike. And then there had been other incidents in the American Southwest as well, with people being run out of town in the wake of labor disputes. One thing all of these deportations had in common, besides workers going on strike, was the involvement of the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies. The Industrial Workers of the World was possibly the most reviled labor organization in the United States at the time. All this was going on during World War I, and this was the only major labor union to speak out against the war. They were also against conscription. They didn't think people should be drafted into the military. And their leadership was also full of socialists. A lot of the other unions in existence at the time were really about working within capitalism to try to get the best working conditions and pay and benefits for the workers. That's not really what the Wobblies were doing. They were speaking against capitalism a lot. They were talking more about dismantling a capitalist system because it was damaging. So it was very easy for their critics to paint their work as anti-American and, in the context of World War I, as pro-German. They were so hated that even today, it's kind of hard to pick it apart to figure out what the legitimate criticisms were and which things were completely made up. So to get back to Bisbee... The key issues for the workers in this in the mines in Bisbee was not their pay. Their pay changed based on how much copper was selling for, which wasn't ideal, but they were actually more concerned about their safety and their working conditions. And when the Wobblies arrived in town, which was actually not that long before this strike happened, they took a set of demands to mine management that were mostly related to safety and working conditions. In other industries, managers had made some concessions to labor because they wanted to keep things going during the war, but that was not what happened in the mine industry in Bisbee. They rejected all of the demands completely. The industrial workers of the world called for a strike on June 26th. Now, these were legitimate issues. The issues that had been presented to management were legitimate. The frustration over all of those demands being just completely refused, also legitimate. But this wasn't the sort of thing that would normally lead people to strike. Even so, the strike went on for a couple of weeks without any violence, until the town suddenly crossed a sort of mental threshold. They became convinced that these striking workers and the unions themselves had been infiltrated by Germans. Suddenly this became a huge threat. They were frightened by the idea that there was a German element that was deeply embedded in all of these unions. 
This was mostly just a wartime anti-immigrant panic, and it was also being fueled by the local newspapers, which were owned by one of the mining companies. The sheriff and mine officials acted on their own in what they did. They didn't go to the army. They didn't go to federal authorities. They just decided they were going to round everybody up and take them out of town. So on the morning of the 12th, they moved through the town and they rounded people up at gunpoint. They forced people to go to Warren Ballpark and to wait in the stands there until a train got there. And then once the train was there, they forced everyone to either denounce the strike or to get on a manure-encrusted cattle car. Most of the people who decided to denounce the strike didn't actually work in the mines. A lot of the people who had been rounded up in all of this were basically bystanders. The train traveled 16 hours east to Columbus, New Mexico, where the people who had thought up this whole plan to just drop them off at Camp Furlong, but they hadn't really thought all that through very well. Camp Furlong didn't really have the facilities to just absorb a giant group of miners. So they backtracked to Hermanos, New Mexico, where these men spent the night in the desert. Eventually, the army came back, escorted them back to Columbus, provided them with rations, and assigned them to dig latrines. At this point, these men were all technically free to go. But where they wanted to go was home, to Bisbee. And Bisbee was not going to have them back. Bisbee had posted guards at all the roads to keep people from coming back into town. And they also established a kangaroo court where they tried people on just completely made-up charges and then had them evicted from town also. Most of the people who were out there were out there for weeks or months, and they never got to go back home. Maybe they met their families somewhere else. Maybe they found work in another town, but their rights were never restored. And as is so often the case in these kinds of stories, there was an investigation, but nobody who arranged or participated in this deportation was ever convicted of any crime. There is so much more to say about this, and you can hear it in the May 2nd, 2018 episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class called The Bisbee Deportation. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow's story also connects to labor, but it takes place during the American Civil War. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was July 12, 1856. American filibuster William Walker was inaugurated as president of Nicaragua. Walker was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1824. He went on to study medicine and law, and later he became the co-owner and editor of the New Orleans Crescent. Walker was an adherent of the philosophy of Manifest Destiny, a 19th century belief that U.S. territorial expansion across the North American continent was inevitable and destined by God. It was a belief that encouraged the displacement and persecution of many indigenous people and people of color on the continent. After moving to San Francisco, then Marysville near Sacramento, Walker began devising a scheme to conquer parts of Latin America to create new slave states to add to the United States. This was not a new idea. Filibustering, or freebooting, was the practice of engaging in unauthorized warfare against countries that the U.S. was at peace with. 
The government did not approve these armed expeditions, and they were a violation of federal law that said it was illegal to wage war against countries that were at peace with the U.S. In the years before the Civil War, many foolhardy Americans set out to seize territory in Central and South America. Walker made his motivations clear, saying the following, That which you ignorantly call filibusterism is not the offspring of hasty passion or ill-regulated desire. It is the fruit of the sure, unerring instincts which act in accordance with laws as old as the creation. They are but drivelers who speak of establishing fixed relations between the pure white American race as it exists in the United States and the mixed Hispano-Indian race as it exists in Mexico and Central America without the employment of force. Walker first looked toward Mexico. He tried to get permission from Mexico to create a colony there under the guise that it would serve as a fortified frontier. But when Mexico said no, Walker decided to just plan an invasion. He went back to San Francisco and began recruiting people for the invasion who supported slavery and Manifest Destiny and who were looking for some sort of success. In 1853, he and his crew captured La Paz, the capital of the Mexican state of Baja California, and called it the Republic of Lower California, later called the Republic of Sonora. He declared himself president and adopted Louisiana state codes, which made slavery legal. Though more Americans joined him in Mexico, supplies were lacking and neither Mexico nor the U.S. government were happy with his actions. By 1854, Walker and the Band of Invaders were forced to surrender and leave Mexico. Still, when Walker went to trial in California for starting an illegal war and violating the Neutrality Act of 1794, the jury acquitted him in just eight minutes. So Walker continued his filibustering efforts. He took advantage of civil war in Nicaragua to bring mercenaries to the country and capture the city of Granada. U.S. President Franklin Pierce recognized Walker's regime as legitimate, and on July 12, 1856, Walker became president of Nicaragua. Walker reinstated slavery, declared English the official language, and encouraged immigration from the U.S. through changes to currency and fiscal policy. He promoted the filibustering expedition as a way to expand slavery to win the support of U.S. Southerners. But Walker had already earned the anger of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who controlled transit businesses in Nicaragua. Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala also opposed Walker and his plans of military conquest. Walker surrendered to Commander Charles Henry Davis of the U.S. Navy on May 1, 1857. Walker was welcomed back when he returned to the U.S., but when he went to Honduras on another filibuster in 1860, the British government had too much strategic and economic interest in the region to tolerate his ploys, and they shut the operation down. A commander in the British Royal Navy sent him to Honduran authorities instead of sending him back to the United States. Walker was executed in Trujillo on September 12, 1860. Once the U.S. Civil War broke out in 1861, filibustering died out. Before the end of the war, Walker was remembered fondly in the southern and western United States for his exploits, dubbed the gray-eyed man of destiny by his admirers. Many northerners, on the other hand, saw him as a pirate. Central American countries viewed his defeat with pride, but Walker's recognition soon faded into history. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn more about history by following us on Twitter, 
Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through time. See you here in the exact same spot tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.